Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. We are right in the middle of this series that we've been calling For the Culture. If you've missed the last couple weeks, I want to encourage you to go back and grab them on the podcast or on the YouTube because I think God is really speaking to us something in this season. The scripture that has kind of been our core text just for the entire series is out of Matthew 4 and 17. And it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I love the way the message version says it though. The message version says, and he picked up where John left off. Change your life, God's kingdom is here. God said, change your life. Jesus came into the picture. I'm gonna jump straight in because I know we've done a lot already. Are you guys ready to go? Not a lot of warm up today, right? Let's go for it because when Jesus began to preach, the message that he had was simple. It was, I want you to change your life. That's what that word repent means. It doesn't mean all of the baggage that we've added onto it over centuries of adding all kinds of additional things that Jesus did. It doesn't have any of the guilt that you think of when you hear the word. It doesn't have any of the condemnation that you feel when you think of that word, that tightness inside of you or that heaviness on you. No, no, no. Jesus said, when I say repent, what I'm saying is I have a new way of living for you. I have a fresh start for you. I have a fresh direction for you. So I want you to change the way that you're doing things. That's where this whole concept came from because there is a way that we do things. We call it our culture. There is a way that we live our lives and a way that we make decisions and a way that we interact with one another. And the question we're asking ourselves throughout this is the way that we're living, the way that Jesus laid out for us, or is the way that we're living a reflection of the day and the hour and the time? Is the culture that we're living in the culture that Jesus has for us? Is the culture that we're reflecting the culture of heaven, the culture of the kingdom of God or is the culture that we're living in and the culture that we're expressing the culture of 2021 in in middle America what culture are you communicating what culture are you replicating what culture are you extending because when Jesus began to preach he said change your life I have a new culture for you. I have a new way of living for you. I have a new direction and a new plan for you. And that plan is my kingdom. My kingdom is here. My way of living is here. And guess what? It doesn't look anything like the things that you're used to. It's still blowing our minds the same way today that it did for first century Christians because it is so drastically different than what our natural intuition wants to go for. It's so drastically different than the ways that we've grown up, than the ways that we see reflected to us in society. But Jesus says, if you'll live in this way, this is the culture of my people. 
And so as a family of God, we are leaning into and asking God, what are the things that we've been holding on to that don't reflect who you have called us to be, that don't look like the people that you have called us to be? We want to look like you. That is the essence of this collection of messages. How do we live in a way that reflects what Jesus came to give us? So God, today, we thank you for your presence. I thank you that you're here. I thank you for what you have already done in this service. We ask you today to help us look more like you. I thank you for your anointing. I thank you that you are present. I ask you to help me speak the words that you've spoken to me. And God, to do that thing that only you do, which is to take one message, take one meal, and to break it up and to make it feed all of us. You know each of our needs, you know each of our questions, you know each of our areas of hurting God and of, of desire. And I thank you that this can speak to all of us through you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. We had all of these kids up here on this platform. And the, the thing that's funny to me about little kids is that a big part of your life with little kids is setting up the boundaries and the rules. You spend a lot of time just setting up what are the rules and the boundaries. And anyone who has parented little people knows that you find yourself having to set up rules and boundaries that you never, um, it never crossed your mind. That that was a rule that I was going to have to, that I was going to have to clarify for you that that is not acceptable behavior because little people just do all, let me give you an example. We have three little people. And they get to eat these gummy multivitamins every morning after their breakfast. So one morning, I distribute the vitamins. I'm emptying the dishwasher. I come to the table where they're sitting. And my two-year-old, my middle child, says to me, Mommy, Mommy, vitamins sticky. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about, child? I, he brings me over. I look over where he brings me to the wall where he has taken his multivitamin, has licked his multivitamin, and stuck it to our wall. And he's so proud of himself. He's not hiding it. He's not embarrassed about it. He, it has not occurred to him that this is not something we should be doing in our house. He's like, look how my vitamin sticks to the wall. And this, for the next week, turns into now an official rule in our house. When vitamins are distributed, they now come accompanied with the corresponding rule. Do we lick and stick our vitamins? No. Where do vitamins go? In our mouth. Do vitamins go on the wall? No. All of these rules that it never occurred to me would be part of my life of explaining to little people that vitamins cannot stick to the wall. If you distribute gummy vitamins in your household, be warned, they will stick to the wall if they are licked long and hard enough. But that's kind of the role of a parent, right? Is to set up these rules in our house and to begin to create boundaries. And even as we grow and we get older in life, there continue to be rules and boundaries that we have to abide by. And we have kind of a funny relationship with rules, all of us. We probably fall into one of three categories, generally, naturally, temperamentally. One, you are maybe a lover of rules. 
you are like, where are the rules? Sign me up. Let me know what they are. I want to know my expectations. I want to know my boundaries, right? Like some of you right now are like, oh yeah, are we getting a fresh set of rules for Sunday morning services? That would be helpful for me so I can know what's expected of me when I come in here, right? You love to hear about the rules. And there's a whole nother group of you, the middle crowd, you ignore the rules. And then the third group is the rule breakers, which is a difference, right? Rule ignorers are a little bit like, they just kind of overlook the rules. They kind of heard them, but they forgot to pay attention. And so they're not quite as active in their intentional breaking. They're just like, oh, were we not supposed, sorry. I, yeah, someone did say something to me about that, but I didn't really. And then there's the rule breakers. They are paying close attention to what the list of rules is for the exact opposite reason of the rule lovers. They want to find out what the list of rules is so that because their entire existence is about figuring out how to push back on every rule that is distributed. And again, maybe it's a a parenting day. It's in the air, right? We did child dedication. Right now, you're like, oh my gosh, that's child A. That's child B. That's child C. I have a rule lover. I have a rule breaker. I have my child who is trying to push all of these boundaries. And you know, even as a grown-up, you kind of fall into one of these categories. The truth is we kind of have some variety in that though as well, right? There's some variations. So here's where I kind of fall on that spectrum. It's a funny gray space that's taken me most of my adult life to figure out. I love rules. Like I really like to know what the rules are and I like to be able to follow the rules. Except for if I don't think the rule makes sense. If I decide in myself, this is my dysfunction, I am not telling you to follow this, but if I look at a rule and I go, that rule, that's illogical. I've created a logical construct in my mind why that rule is irrelevant. All of a sudden, I have a pass within my my own personal self to myself to break that rule. And I feel like, well, this rule shouldn't really exist because I've found a reason that this rule doesn't really function. I'm trying to find what we're always trying to find. We want to know what are the lines and the loops in this rule. What are the lines of how far I can take this rule? What are the lines of the boundary of this? And we need this in our, we all want to know. When we find out, hey, you can do this, you can do that, we wanna know what's the, this is why on canyons, they build the barrier about six to 12 inches back from where they actually want you to be. Because they know all of us have this tendency on the inside of us that, that we want to know where is the line, why? not so I can hang out a safe distance from the line, so that I can find the line and then lean up on it and see how how far over can I see. So, for example, one of the logical constructs of why I'm allowed to break certain rules that I've created is that I figure they've applied this logic to the speed limit. And that when they create the speed limit, they have intentionally created the speed limit about five miles an hour lower than what is actually a safe speed to be driving because they know that we are gonna find the boundary and so they expect me to be going about five miles over what they have posted on that sign. This is, I'm not, if you are 16 and 17 years old, this is not good advice because I have paid many a fees and can let you know that the police would strongly disagree with my logic on this theory. But this is why we create lines. This is why we have these boundaries because there is something in us that wants to know where is the line, where is the boundary, and how do I press up all the way to it? And then we're looking for loops. 
What's the exception to this rule? What's the out that I have? What are the conditions in which I don't really have to follow? If it's an emergency, I don't have to follow the speed limit. And and what constitutes an emergency? How how bad does the situation what's the if I follow this line long enough, eventually it might loop on me and that's the gap that I find and the hole that I find of where I can slide through life without quite having to get on board with this rule right here. This is really, I love lawyers, you're awesome, but this is really what their entire career is based on, is how do we find the loops? How do we find the holes? How do we find the space to go, ooh, that's why the rule doesn't apply. And there was a lawyer in scripture who was looking for a loop. He wanted to know where the line was and he wanted to know where the loop was. If you'll turn with me in the book of Luke to chapter 10. I think it's interesting, still funny to me today, that Luke records this story and he makes sure to point out that this guy was a lawyer and it tells me that even then there was some kind of a tiff between doctors and lawyers because Luke was a doctor and he wanted us to know that this lawyer had some questions for Jesus and Jesus was gonna school him today. In Luke 10 and starting in verse 25, Luke 10 and 25, it says, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, being Jesus, to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him. And what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as your Self. He's quoting a common summary of the Levitical law. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But this joker can't leave good enough alone. He just got a compliment from Jesus. But he's got to go. He's looking for his loop. And he says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Where is that line? Is there a loop attached to that line? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem. Jesus is gonna tell him a little story to answer his question. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite who came to the other side But then a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three, he's come out of his story and he's addressing the man again, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, the lawyer is not a fool, and he said, it was the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, now you go and do likewise. 
what is happening in this story. This is, we're gonna dig into it a little bit. Maybe it's familiar to you and maybe it's not, but this is a story that Jesus crafted specifically to answer this man's question. He chose details in this story and characters in this story and locations in this story to try and give the man a picture of there is a way that you have been doing things and it's different than the way that I want you to do things. There is a culture that you have been living in and there is a culture that I came to announce and I need you to repent. I need you to turn from the way that you're accustomed to doing things and lean into the way that I am calling you to do things. This lawyer came to Jesus. He was used to being the clever guy among his friends. He was the most well studied of all of his people. And to be a lawyer, what it means is that he was knowledgeable and studied in the Levitical law. He knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. He knew exactly. He had studied the ancient text. He had studied the Jewish scripture. He knew where to point to and he knew what to line out and he knew exactly where the lines were and he knew exactly where the loops were. He didn't come to Jesus humbly asking because he was curious. He came to Jesus because he was looking to test him and to find out, has he drawn the lines and the loops in the same places that I've drawn the lines and the loops? Has he laid out this text in the same way that I have laid it out? And he wanted to know if he was good enough in his own doing. He wanted to know if he was able to to carry it, but Jesus, instead of drawing more lines for him, instead of creating more opportunities for loops for him, Jesus said, let me tell you a story. I wanna tell you a story about a man because this is bigger than the lines that you have read that you have emotionally disconnected yourself from. This is about the people that you live with every day. This is about the community that you are part of. So I need you to try to get yourself into the moment. And he starts out the story and he said, there was a man coming down the road, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was walking down this road. And this road would not have been an unfamiliar road to the people he was speaking to. It was known to be a dangerous passageway. It twists and it turns and it winds and it's uphill, steep in the midst of the desert. It is narrow in portions. It is not a safe place to be. And it is known that robbers and thieves like to hide in the coves and hide on the edges when they hear. It's like if someone started a story and said, it was a dark, cool October. October evening, and you'd be like, oh, this story is not going anywhere good. When Jesus started out and he said to the crowd, there was a man traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho, they would have known this is not good for this man. And he walks them into this place and there is this man, this man who finds himself alone on a desperate road. He finds himself alone walking in a space, walking in a road that he knows is dangerous, what has brought him to this road. And sure enough, just as the audience expects, he finds himself attacked by robbers and they beat the man, they beat him in his flesh and they strip him of everything that he had and they leave him laying there exposed and 
naked and half dead on the road, on this desolate road. There is this man, this man who was already wandering alone. And there he finds himself laying on the side of a road. He's laying on the side of the road, barely able to breathe anymore. He has none of the resources that he came with. And not only does he not have any of the resources, he is completely exposed, exposed to the elements, exposed to anyone who walks by, exposed to any beast of the field. I don't know if you have ever been beat down to a place that you feel like I don't even have my dignity left anymore. They left me beaten and they left me stripped and they left me laying here in the midst of my own pain, in the midst of my own turmoil, and I don't even have a cloak to cover myself with anymore. It's just all exposed out here and I feel vulnerable and I feel incapable and I don't have the strength in myself to stand myself up and there is this man laying there hurting wasting away wondering if every breath that he breathes is his last breath and suddenly he hears the sound of footsteps footsteps on a road that's an abandoned road. Now, there are a couple times a year during the feast that this road would have heavy traffic. Otherwise, everyone avoided it. No one wanted to take this dangerous, difficult path. So the man is laying there thinking it could be days before someone else walks by. And all of the sudden, he hears the sound of footsteps. He likely hears the sound of bells and of holy garments walking up the road. And he doesn't have the strength in himself to lift himself. He doesn't have the strength in himself to cry out for some help. But he hears that hope might be walking up. He hears, and for a second, if you're listening, if you're the audience that Jesus is speaking to, you feel the pain this man is feeling and you think a Levite is coming. A priest is coming. The priest is walking up the road. Surely hope is on its way. The priest is the person who served in the temple. He is the highest regarded person of title, of stature in their Jewish culture. He is the ultimate picture of what it means to be godly. He is the ultimate picture of what it means to access eternal life through the Levitical law. So surely this is the hopeful moment in the story. And the crowd that's listening feels hope along with the man who's laying beaten on the side of the road that this, this could be the savior for this man. Man, but it says the Levi saw him and crossed to the other side so he wouldn't even have to come near the man, so he wouldn't even have to deal with it. He crosses all the way to the other side and continues on, and there's the man still breathing his heavy labored breath, still bleeding out on the side of the road, still stripped, still exposed, wondering if this is his last day. The birds are starting to circle in the air because it is getting thick for this man laying in the dirt, and he hears another sound. And this time, it's a Levite. Now, the Levites were similar to the priests. They were of the lineage of the Levites, so they were considered the holy tribe devoted unto the temple, but they weren't of the line of Aaron inside the Levites. There were a lot of lines and a lot of loops when it comes to the Old Testament. But they were allowed to serve in the temple. They helped. They were like assistant priests for lack of a better term, right? So he's like just one notch down and you think as you're listening to the story, this is the man that's gonna help. 
Surely this one is going to come and he's going to help. And you think, oh, of course, the priest didn't have time to stop for the man. And and he had to go up because he was headed to offer the sacrifices. And and the law is so set on maintaining your cleanliness and making sure that you're not not being, being, uh, you know, infiltrated with, with the commoners and being infiltrated with the trouble of the day. Of course, it makes sense that the priest had to continue on his way to make sure that he got to the temple on time. He has very important work to do and he wouldn't have been able to set himself aside for seven days and not continue on his work until the time of cleanliness. That makes sense to me, but surely the assistant, surely just one of the Levites, his, his schedule's not quite so busy, so I'm sure that he's going to stop for the man. But why would he stop when it's not what has been demonstrated for him in his culture? What has been demonstrated for him that we know by his leader is that we don't stop for this kind of situation. We don't stop for this kind of mess. We're not going to allow ourselves to be dirtied and be brought into this situation. So the Levite does exactly what the priest does and he sees the man, but then he crosses on to the other side so he can avoid any of the trouble, so he can avoid any of the mess that this might cause him, so that he doesn't have any delays in his schedule. And he carries on, and if you're listening, you think all hope must be lost for this man. All hope is lost for him because the two holiest people that we know in our culture, in our way of living, the priest and the Levite, have seen him and have crossed on to the other side and have continued to carry on. And there is the man still alone and bleeding and naked and breathing his last on the side of the road. And then Jesus introduces a third character. And he says, and then a Samaritan came walking on the road. Now, when you hear that, if you've been in church before, you go, oh, yes, this is the good part of the story. But I want you to shift your mind a minute. I want you to be a first-century Jew because if you're a first-century Jew, Samaritans are always the villains in the story. They are always the bad guy. They are the utter enemies of the Jews. The Samaritans used to be Jews, but then they intermarried with some other cultures and they kind of mixed up their religion. So they they served kind of a form of Judaism, but it also had some other things in it. And the Jews absolutely detested them. And the Samaritans detested the Jews as well. They, had not, they built separate mountains with separate temples so they never had to be near each other. They absolutely hated everything about each other. And they thought that the Samaritans were a lower life form than the Jews. The Jews were where it was at. And the Samaritans were always the villains in the story. Whoever you think of when you think of villains. I love watching like old movies because you can kind of see what was going on in history when you look and see who the bad guys in movies are, right? Like if you watch the old Star Wars movies, the bad guys look like Nazis, right? Because you're like, yes, because the Nazis were the bad guys during that time in history. And we just kind of morph. And look, that is what, when Jesus said, and then a Samaritan came walking down, the people's hearts would have dropped and gone, there is no hope for this man. Because Jesus just introduced the villain in the story. Surely this is the man who's going to finish him off. If the priest and the Levite didn't stop and have compassion on this man, surely the Samaritan isn't either. But Jesus takes who they have placed as the villain of the story and makes him the hero of the story. 
I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for a God that takes the villain moments in my life and makes them the heroic parts of my tale. That he takes the moments that I'm most broken, that he takes the moments when others despise me the most, and he makes that the champion moment in my story. And it says that the Samaritan comes walking down the road. And this is where the whole thing changes. Because the priest saw the man and he crossed to the other side. He moved away from the man who was hurting. The Levite came and he saw the man and he crossed to the other side. He moved away from the man that was hurting. But when the Samaritan saw this man, it says he saw him and he moved toward him. He moved toward the man that needed his help. He moved toward the situation, although it was going to be messy. He moved into when it looked like all hope was lost. Instead of moving away, the Samaritan moved toward him. He had compassion. Jesus is laying out for us what the character of neighboring looks like. And the character of neighboring looks like compassion. It looks like moving toward when others want to move away. It looks like moving into a space when others want to step away from it. It looks like moving towards the hurting and the broken and the needy and the messy. It is setting a new way of life. While the law laid out a culture for them that said, don't allow yourself to become too defiled. Don't allow yourself to become too dirty. Jesus said, I'm laying out a new culture for you that says, when you see messy situations, I want you to move toward that. When you see broken situations, I want you to move into that space. When you see hurting people, I want you to move toward that. I want your heart to be moved with compassion. I want you to move toward this man. And then it says that he cared for him. The man offered care for him. He didn't just move toward him to find out what was going on. He didn't just move into the situation to see if he could get a better look. He didn't just move into it so that he could start posting his opinions about it and telling everyone he knows what he thinks about that road and why he doesn't know why they haven't built something else better on that road. And everyone knows if the party that I voted for was in line, we would have done something different with that road by now. No, he doesn't come into the situation to form an opinion or to begin to develop his status. He moved in into the situation so he could offer care to this man so that he could now get down not just toward him but down with him he had to get down on this man's level and it says that he began to bind all of his wounds he began to wrap the wounds that were left there bleeding and open in the space and that he poured oil and he poured wine on them the man got up on top of the situation and he got down in the midst of it and he said I see that they've left you exposed let me cover that for you when we move in to care for people part of what we do is that we cover them with some bandages we wrap them and we say everybody doesn't have to see your wounds and everybody doesn't have to see your scars Everybody doesn't have to see the place where they opened you up. Everybody doesn't have to see the place where you were beaten. Everybody doesn't have to see the place where you feel broke down. Everybody doesn't have to see the place where you feel wounded. I have a bandage for that, and I have a God who covers it. I want to care for you in a way that I'm going to wrap up your wounds. I'm going to bind up your hurting. I'm going to bind up the place where you were left exposed. And he bound his wounds. 
And then it says that he poured in oil and wine, oil and wine. I love that Luke takes time to notice how he cared for the wounds because Luke was a doctor and oil and wine were common medicine of the time. The oil came in to take away the pain. The oil came in to alleviate the pain, to alleviate the sting of the moment. It offered relief. When we come in as a people who are coming to care for somebody, we should offer relief. Jesus is painting a picture for them and he says the culture that you're used to comes into a messy situation and it offers heavier burdens. It offers more rules. It offers more condemnation. It offers stricter guidelines. It offers tougher sentences. It offers higher penitence and it offers more weight when a person is already down and hurting. And No, when I come into a situation, when my people come into a situation, the way that I'm laying out from you from here on out, out from that time he began to preach that when you come into a situation what you offer in the situation is not condemnation is not heaviness is not a weighty burden what you offer in a situation is relief when the people of God come in it should be a oh, I can breathe again oh the pain has lifted oh I can feel the presence of a savior there is relief in this moment and then he offered wine and the wine offers cleansing the wine cleaned the situation it disinfected it from everything that it was exposed to it disinfected it from everything that could have gotten in that open wound from everything mm, I don't know what has gotten in the open you know sometimes we get hit and we get beaten by life and that wound is bad enough but then it's left open and it's left exposed and because you're walking around with an open wound in your life that hasn't been bound up and hasn't been offered any relief it gets more junk on the inside of it and it was bad enough as it was but then you came and you had that open wound and that open wound created insecurity in your life and you walked into a classroom where they told you you didn't know how to learn anyway and it began to fester and it began to turn into pus and it began to bleed out on everything and it began to turn into an infection that got so deep in your heart and so deep in your soul that you thought you would never be free from it come on I don't know if you've ever had an open wound in your life that got more and more left on it inside of it festering it but when the people of God come in first we got to cover that thing up so no more gets on the inside of it then we're gonna pour in some relief so you can just get a moment of relief from that thing but we're not gonna leave you like that no there is a cleansing anointing that comes with the care that Jesus came to offer us there is a cleansing that happens that he says oh I'm gonna get all the way into it and I'm gonna clean it from all the way I'm gonna make sure it's disinfected from top to bottom you're not gonna carry this disease anymore this disease isn't going to take you out anymore. It's not going to torment you in the middle of your night anymore. You're not going to be carried by it. You're not going to be marred by it. You're not going to say, I have residual symptoms from. No, he gets in with a cleansing anointing and he cleans it all the way. The man came and he offered care to him. When he moved with compassion, he offered care. Then it says he carried him. God is saying the character of others is one who carries, of neighbors carry others. They carry others. He had been on a hard road already. The man was already walking on a difficult, treacherous path. He was already walking on a hard, difficult journey. And then in the middle of his difficult journey, he was attacked. 
I want you to see the picture. I want you to find yourself. Have you been on a difficult journey? Were you in a spot where you were like, I'm already working so hard just to hold it together? I'm already struggling so much just to try and make it up this mountain. I'm already trying to see what's around the next corner. I'm already carrying more than I can feel like I can carry, and you're going to attack me in the middle of it? I'm already doing everything I can to keep this business together. And sickness is going to come in the midst of that? I'm already trying to overcome my own childhood trauma, and now you're going to tell me my teenager's having trouble at school? In the midst of that, it's like the hits just keep on coming for this guy. That he's already in the midst of a heavy thing and, it, and then something else comes in and attacks him and it takes him all the way down to the point where he thought he might lose it. If you feel like you've already been walking on a difficult path, you've already been on a treacherous path and something else came in and hit you and attacked you, let me just say to you today, you might feel like you are at the bottom, but you are not going to lose it. You are not going to lose it. There is still a God who sees you, who loves you, and a community who carries you. Because neighbors come in and it says he picked him up and he put him on his own donkey. He carried this man who was too weak to stand on his own, who was too weak to walk on his own. He wasn't in a position to pick himself up by his own bootstraps. He wasn't on a, in a position to hear a lecture about the steps he could have taken to guard himself better. He wasn't in a position to take a step-by-step -step plan on how to get out of this situation. He needed someone to carry him for a moment. Someone who didn't have a lot of questions. Someone who didn't have a lot of judgment. Someone who could offer some help and some assistance. And it said the Samaritan, the villain in their minds, carried this man to a place of rest. They carried him to a place where he could rest. And the neighbors put up their coin. This man put his wealth where his walk was. He said, if I'm going to show up and care for this person, I can't do it halfway. I can't do it by likes and shares alone. I need to show up with my generosity. I have prosperity. He obviously was a wealthy man because he was carrying supplies with him and he showed up to the place and he gave of his own money and he said, whatever other charges you have, I'll cover it when I come. He knew that he had enough in reserve to cover whatever was going on, but his prosperity had a purpose. He knew how to direct the prosperity and the wealth that God had given him in his life. Neighbors are people who show up and they bring their coin along with them. They bring their generosity into the midst of a situation. They bring everything that they have to care for others, to make sure that there's not lack, to make sure that while this man rests, he's not worrying about, am I going to have to pay for all of this food that they're bringing me while my body? No, don't worry about that because this man has already covered it. He showed up with his compassion, with his care, with his carrying, and with his coin. He showed up. And Jesus exits the fictional part of the story and he turns back to the lawyer and he says, so who is the neighbor in the story? And you have to imagine the man who has felt so confident to this point, 
is now having to admit that the enemy of his stories, the villain in his mind and in his culture, the person that he has deemed is on the outside. If you read the text, it's so interesting. He won't even say it was the Samaritan in the story. It's like the word doesn't fit right in his mouth. And what's so interesting is Jesus says to him again, the question that the man asked Jesus at the beginning, who is the neighbor in this story? And the man says, the neighbor is the one who showed mercy. The neighbor is the one. Jesus asked him, who is the neighbor? And there is Jesus asking him a question, a question with the answer right there in the midst of it. And the man repeats back to him the thing that he asked. The neighbor is, the word neighbor, they're saying it back and forth. A neighbor is who? Who is the neighbor in the story? And the the core of that word neighbor, the word that they're using in Greek when they're speaking back and forth to one another, that word neighbor, the core of what that word means is simply fellow human. The culture had attached a lot of other things to it about people who look like me or people who are part of my religious group or people who live inside my neighborhood or the people who I deem live holy enough or people who have made enough right decisions that they are worthy. But Jesus says, no, let's actually talk about what this means. I want you, you wanna draw loops? You wanna draw loops? Let me draw that loop a little bit wider for you. Let me draw that loop a little bit broader for you. Who is your neighbor? Who is your fellow human? That's the question that he's asking. Who is the neighbor in this story? Who is the fellow human in this story? Who is the fellow human being in the midst of this story? Who is the fellow person? Who is the fellow image bearer of God in this story? Who is the one who acted like a neighbor in this story? Who is the one who acted human in this story? It doesn't look like the way that you thought that it looked like, and it doesn't sound like the one that you thought that it was going to sound like, and he doesn't worship in the place that you thought he was going to worship in, and he doesn't follow all of the rules that you thought that he was going to follow and he doesn't live in the community that you thought that he was going to live in and he worships on a different mountain than you and he uses a little bit of a different dialect than you but my question to you is not who looks like you in this story or who did you expect in this story no Jesus says to him who is the fellow human in this story Jesus says when we're talking about the way that I want things to be the way that my kingdom works the way that my people work the way that I am calling you into the way that I am calling you into simply ask this question are they human then they qualify are they human then that's who are they human that's the one are they also a person then that's the one go after people who are also people those are the people who are your neighbors and I love what Jesus does in the way that he tells the story and in the way that he flips the question on the man You have to read the subtext of the man's question. The man is asking Jesus this question, and who is my neighbor? Because he has just explained that I should love my neighbor as myself. I should extend love to to all of the people that I encounter. And so Jesus starts flipping this picture for him because this is what the man has done. I want you to see it. I want to... I want to explain it clearly. When the man asks the question, he says, and who is my neighbor? And the position he is putting himself in is he is stepping up 
onto a pedestal and he's saying, oh, now that I am worthy of eternal life and now that I have followed all of your rules and guidelines and we know that I love you with all of my heart, who is my neighbor? Meaning, who is the one who is a little bit lower than me that I need to reach down to? How low do you require me to reach Jesus? How far out do you require? Who is the one who should be deemed worthy of receiving my benevolence and my oh so amazing magnificence that I would deem to offer charitable extensions down to those. And we like to throw rocks at this man, but we do the same thing. We say, who is my neighbor? Where is a homeless shelter that I can go and serve in so I can be so wonderful? And where are those who are in need? So I, who are those that I can reach down to from my pedestal so that I can reach out to them and be a demonstration of neighborly love? And Jesus flips the question on him in the story. And he says, the question of who is your neighbor is not who is the most needy among you. The question of who is your neighbor doesn't have to do with who has the most lack among you. The question should not be how low do I have to reach? How far is the line or where is the loop? The question that you're asking is the wrong question because the question that you're asking is wrapped in the culture that you've grown up in. I'm trying to get you to ask new questions. I'm trying to get you to ask better questions so that I can bring you into a better way of living. Stop asking who is my neighbor that I might deem down to reach and start asking, have I been a neighbor? Jesus says, this is the one who was the neighbor, the one who acted like it, the one who reached out to somebody else, the one who cared for them, the one who was moved towards someone else's pain and mess and trouble, the one who knew how to carry. The question is not, is that person worthy of me reaching out to them? The question is not, am I able to reach that person? The question is, have I behaved in a way? Don't make me take you back to last week. Get that plank out of your eye and stop asking, are they worthy for me to reach to them? And start looking the way of the kingdom, the way of his culture says, I have to look at myself first and not ask, are they my neighbor? Are they inside the line or are they outside the loop? And ask myself first, have I been a neighbor? Have I acted worthy of neighboring? Have I been a reflection of his kingdom culture? Have I been the kind of person that God called? Have I been moved with compassion? Have I been moved to care for others? Have I been moved to carry somebody else? Have I put my coin in that place and allowed my generosity to take care of others? Have you been a neighbor? Have you acted human? Have you reached out to your fellow human? This is the message that he's trying to get across to us. That in my way, it's not about the lines that you can draw. It's not about the loopholes that you can find. Jesus said, I'm going to draw that loop as broad as I can possibly get it. Are they a fellow human? If they are a fellow human, the question is, not are they my neighbor, am I a neighbor? Am I a neighbor? Am I moving in the way that he has called me to. When we read this, we're not so different from those first century Jews to our 21st century culture. We still wanna find ways to justify ourselves, lists of things that we can give as to why we're good enough or why this people group qualifies and that people group doesn't. And Jesus is saying the same thing about his way of living 
today as he did to them. The way that you know that you're living in my way is how you respond to others, how you welcome in those who are hurting, how you welcome in those who are in need, how you care for them, how your heart is moved, not with questions, not with judgment, but with compassion. He says the neighbor is the one who showed mercy, who showed mercy. Let us be ones who show mercy. That's his way, that we would walk in love. Amen, church? Father God, give us hearts like yours. Help us to be good neighbors. Help us to be good fellow humans. Help us to treat one another with compassion, with care, with caring, with our coin, God. Let us neighbor well. I thank you for your word that came forth. I ask you for it to take root in our lives. And God, to produce in us good, healthy kingdom fruit. I ask for a blessing on every person that's here today as we walk through our week. We thank you for it, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen.